Well, good morning, church. Go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Today's message is entitled, Liberties and Love. As you know, we've been studying through the book of Romans, which was a letter written by Paul to the church in Rome. In Romans chapter 12, Paul began to teach us practical application. Now that we've believed in Jesus and become Christians, now what? Since he died for us, how do we live for him? Paul told us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, to love each other and serve each other. He even told us to love our enemies. And perhaps as an application to loving our enemies, last week we learned that he told us to submit to the government and submit to the authorities. We also learned last week that even though we might not like those who are in charge, we're supposed to submit to them because they're chosen by God. It doesn't mean that God approves of what they do, but it does mean that God is in control and that God will use those authorities for his purpose and for his plan. We also learn that if we're forced to choose between the two, we can't obey God and the authorities, then we have to obey God. Paul ended Romans 13 with two reminders. He said we're to love our neighbor and we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we're to actively and purposefully choose to live for Jesus and not for our flesh. Just like our clothes might be classified as a certain style, we're supposed to put on Jesus so that we can live our lives Jesus style, denying our flesh, loving God, loving others, and looking forward to our heavenly hope. So let's continue reading this practical application of how to live like Jesus, how to live for Jesus. In Romans chapter 14, in verses 1 through 13, we read about freedoms in Christ. Romans 14, verse 1, it says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Doubtful things are gray areas, things the Bible is either unclear on or the Bible completely is silent on. And yet, they can be things that we can be very passionate about. In the past, these gray areas were things like, can a Christian man have long hair? Can a Christian woman wear pants to church? Can a pastor wear jeans or shorts or flip-flops at the pulpit? Can a Christian dance? If you were at my wedding, you would know that I, in fact, cannot dance. Can a Christian play cards? Can a Christian get a tattoo? Today, these gray areas are questions like, can a Christian go trick-or-treating? Can a Christian celebrate Christ's resurrection with Easter eggs and chocolate monies? Can a godly man or woman have a beer? Is it okay for a worship service to utilize fancy lights and lasers during their worship of God? During worship, should I sit down or stand up or should I dance in the aisle? Can a church be a megachurch? With multiple services and locations? Is that okay? How often should we take communion? Monthly? Weekly? Daily? Should I send my kids to public school, home school, or private school? These are just a few examples of things the Bible doesn't specifically address. And yet there are godly men and women who feel very strongly on either sides of each of these issues. That's because these are matters of opinion 
not matters of clear Scripture. If you want to take notes today, your first fill in the blank, we must remember that God's clear commands in Scripture are non-negotiable. God's clear commands in Scripture are non-negotiable. They're not an option. But here in Romans chapter 14, Paul's not talking about black and white commands in Scripture. Paul's talking about gray areas where believers fall on both sides. And he gives us a first century example in verse 2. Paul says, For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. See, in Paul's day, one of the hot topics debated among believers was whether or not they should eat meat. Now, in this passage in Romans 14, Paul doesn't tell us why this was an issue. There's two possible reasons why it was an issue. One possibility is it might have related to idol worship. You see, in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses the church in Corinth because many of these now Christians had in the past worshipped idols. And they would go to these pagan temples and they would have an animal sacrifice and then barbecue feast on the meat as a part of their worship of these idols. And so for many of those pagans who were now believers in Jesus, when they would eat meat, or specifically when they would eat meat from the market that was sold from those temples, they felt convicted. Because to them it brought back all those memories of worshiping idols. And so perhaps this was an issue in Rome as well, where many of these used to worship pagan idols. They say, I don't want to eat meat because it reminds me of worshiping these false gods. Another possibility is that there were Christians who were keeping a strict kosher diet. Jews who had believed in Jesus but kept the traditions of the Jewish diet. And rather than risk eating an unkosher meal, they just decided to eat vegetarian to make it easier. But regardless of why the church disagreed about eating meat, this became a gray area and an area of disagreement among believers. It's important that we notice who the weak one is. Look again at verse 1. It says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. You see, the weak in faith is the one who is more restrictive. The weak in faith is the one who is more restrictive. Now, I want to be clear. A weaker in the faith does not refer to a lesser Christian or a substandard Christian. It simply means that person doesn't have a strong enough faith to enjoy that freedom in Christ, to partake of that gray area. And so in Paul's example, there are two Christians. The stronger in faith feels free to thank God for his cheeseburger. The weaker in faith glorifies God by forsaking meat and eating a salad. Which one's correct? What is God's will in this gray area? Well, here's Paul's answer in verse 3. He says, Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. So God's declaring through the Apostle Paul that they're both right. You can praise God for your cheeseburger or you can praise God for your salad. But God says they're both wrong if they judge each other over this gray area. Your next fill in the blank, 
You see, personal convictions must remain personal. Personal convictions must remain personal. The moment I take my personal conviction and I apply it to others, or I use it to judge others, I've now entered into the realm of sin. I'm now breaking a clear command in Scripture. I've crossed that line. Paul continues in verse 4, and he says, Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. When I take a personal conviction and I apply it to somebody else, I'm acting like that person's master. And yet, we're all on the same level in Christ. Every single believer, we're all equal. Jesus is the only one that's lifted up. And so, we all belong to Jesus. We're all His servants. And notice, Paul reminds us that God is the one who makes us stand. He's the one that gives us righteousness. As we trust in Him, we believe in Him, and He clothes us with His own righteousness. So Paul gives another example of a gray area here in verse 5. He says, One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. And so do you think one day of the week is more holy than another? Great! Do you think all the days are equal? Right on. Just honor the Lord either way. Whether you partake or not, do it unto the Lord. Obviously this is talking again about gray areas, not about sin clear commands in Scripture. But if it's a gray area, regardless of which side you fall on, do it unto the Lord. Paul says in verse 7, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. If you've put your trust in Jesus, you're no longer your own. You see, believing in Jesus isn't just a psychological or mental thought of, yes, I believe the truth that Jesus is God and that he died on the cross for my sin. But that, that belief has to come down to your heart in the sense that you're trusting in Jesus. That the day that you stand before the Lord, you're saying, I'm guilty. I'm not worthy to go to heaven. But Jesus died for me. And I'm trusting His work on the cross to pay for my sin. If you have that trust, that faith in Christ, it's going to affect the way that you live. But, we're saved by grace, by simply receiving that gift. And so because Jesus purchased you and I with His blood, He died for us, and so now we live and die for Him. Therefore, we are accountable to God, not to others. 
the stance I take on a particular gray area, I will be accountable to God in. I'll answer to God not just for whether I ate meat or not, but I'll answer to Him for where my heart was as I ate meat or didn't eat meat. I'll answer to God for whether I looked down on my brother who ate meat, or I'll answer to God for whether I became proud or prideful because I gave up meat, and I'm more spiritual because of it. Paul continues in verse 10. He says, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we're going to take a little tangent for a moment here because Paul brings up the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible talks about two different judgments. One judgment is for non-Christians. One judgment is for Christians. The judgment for non-Christians is called the great white throne judgment. We read about it in Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11. The Apostle John is speaking here, and he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Just pause for a moment and try to imagine what that would look like. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is speaking of the future judgment of God called the great white throne judgment. It's the judgment for non-Christians. And the lake of fire is what we call hell. Eternal suffering and separation from God. If you've not yet trusted in Jesus, then this is what awaits your future. But God doesn't want you to go. God doesn't want you to go to hell. That's why He died in your place. That's why He came and died for the sins of the world on the cross. So that any who surrender their heart to Jesus will be saved. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you will not experience the great white throne judgment. Because you're covered by the blood of Christ. You're clothed in His righteousness. As we sang in that song, faultless will stand before God's throne. Faultless. That always blows me away, just to imagine that, because I know I'm anything but faultless. And yet that's the power of Christ's sacrifice for us. Now, the other judgment is the judgment for Christians, and it's called the judgment seat of Christ, as it's phrased here in Romans 14, or it's called the Bema seat judgment. And bima is just the Greek word for that judgment seat of Christ. That's where we get the word bima from. We read about this judgment in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Paul says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it 
because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through, through fire. So this Bema Seat judgment or judgment seat of Christ is more like the judgment in the Olympics. In the Olympics, all the athletes are judged. Some are awarded prizes. Some don't measure up, but at least they got to go to the Olympics. Still others did great things, maybe even beat records, and yet they become disqualified. They lose their prize, but yet again, they still got to go to the Olympics. That's kind of like the judgment seat of Christ for Christians. You see, we'll all stand before Christ in heaven and give an account of ourselves. Some of us will be rewarded with heavenly rewards. Some of us won't receive rewards, but at least we're in heaven. Still others may lose heavenly rewards because Christ's judgment reveals their heart or their motive was wrong even though their actions were right. But I want to be clear, the judgment that we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians and in Romans 14 is not about gaining or losing salvation. Our salvation is secure because of Jesus' work on the cross. And all we have to do is genuinely accept that free gift of salvation that he offers to any and all who would trust in him. So, Paul reminds us that our earthly choices and motives affect heavenly rewards or lack of heavenly rewards. Our earthly choices and motives affect heavenly rewards. And that's what Paul is pointing at here in Romans 14. Look at verse 11. Paul says, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Each Christian will give God an account of himself or herself. You won't need to give an account of me. You won't need to give an account of him or her, but just of yourself. Paul continues in verse 13. He says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. In the example of eating meat or not eating meat, both sides can become a stumbling block to the other. Let's imagine for the time being, that I'm weak in faith about meat. I'm just convicted about it. I'm not comfortable eating meat. So I'm personally convicted to eat as a vegetarian. But then I find out that you eat meat. If I pull you aside and I say, you know, you really shouldn't eat meat. If you really want to please God, then you'll throw those hot dogs away and you won't eat them. Now, I'm sinning by judging you with my personal conviction, with my opinion but I'm also putting a stumbling block before you because now when you eat those hot dogs when I'm not around, you might be tempted to feel convicted and condemned. Not because you're breaking God's command, but because you're breaking my command. I'm putting a stumbling block before you with my man-made rules, my opinion. Now in the same situation, I'm the vegetarian. Let's imagine you invite me over for dinner 
and you know that I don't eat meat because I'm convicted about it, but you cook me up a nice steak anyway. You're going to help me experience God's blessings that I'm missing out on. That's your heart. In fact, right before we eat, you even read this verse that you found in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 20. It says, When the Lord your God enlarges your border as he has promised you, and you say, Let me eat meat, because you long to eat meat, you may eat as much meat as your heart desires. Wow. Amen. Right? You try to show me that God's okay if I eat meat. Now, I confess, I took that out of context, but praise the Lord, right? Now, you're putting a stumbling block before me. Even though you're right, we're free in Christ to eat meat or not eat meat. If I'm not ready to eat a steak, then I shouldn't. Otherwise, I'm bringing conviction upon myself because I'm sinning against my conscience. I have to obey my convictions, not your convictions, and vice versa. Therefore, Paul explains that if you judge each other on gray areas, you're not only sinning, but you're laying a stumbling block before your brother or sister in Christ. And now we head into that second section of Romans 14. In verses 14 through 23, we read about love amidst liberties. Verse 14, Paul continues and he says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. You see, these gray areas are not about sinful things. They're freedoms in Christ. But if you're convicted about it, you're no longer free to partake of it. Because of your conviction, it becomes unclean for you. And we're going to talk more about this idea a few verses later. Look at verse 15. Paul says, Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. We've already been challenged to keep our convictions to ourselves not to judge each other on these gray areas, but now Paul takes it a step further. Now Paul tells us to forsake our freedom when we're around the weaker brother. To willingly give up that freedom for the sake of our brother or sister in Christ. Paul had this heart towards the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He lived it. And so, in other words, love your brother more than your freedom. Love your brother more than your freedom. So, in practice, in our example where I'm the weaker in faith vegetarian... When you invite me over for dinner, make me a vegetarian meal. You're choosing to serve me in my weakness by joining me in that. This is what Paul means back in verse 1 about receiving the weaker brother. Don't just accept them in their different stance, but love them in it. And in our example, when I'm not around for dinner time, you enjoy that steak. Just don't tell me how good it is. Okay? You don't have to forsake your freedom 
when I'm not around. Now, verse 16, Paul says, Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by man. Can I confess to you guys something? I like to be right. I do. In fact, I don't even mind taking some time to explain to you why I'm right. I'm happy to do so. And yet, that's not the heart that God has for us. You see, Paul reminds us not to focus on these gray areas, not to bother disputing over doubtful things, but instead to focus on the righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Instead of focusing on our differences of opinion, let's focus on our common salvation which we have in Jesus. We can be confident that any of these lists of gray areas, we can find people within the room today that fall on different sides of these issues. We're not united in these issues. We're united in Jesus. He's the one that brings us together. And that is our focus. When we're willing to love each other more than our opinions, then we'll be accepted by God and approved by men. Paul says in verse 19, Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. I want us to notice that phrase that we just read there. All things indeed are pure. Interesting. You see, we could pull that phrase out of context and make it as an excuse for any sinful thing. Anything. All things indeed are, are pure. All things are lawful. After all, that's what the Bible says. But notice the context. Right before it and right after it, Paul's talking about food. When he says all things indeed are pure, Paul is saying we're free in Christ to eat any food. Now this would have been a big Revelation for all of those Jews who were raised eating kosher and now coming to Christ and Paul says, look, you're free to keep eating kosher or you're free to come to the potluck and taste some bacon. But it's up to you. And if you're convicted about bacon because of the way that you were raised, the culture you were in, by all means, I will eat my bacon at home, not around you. But that phrase, all things indeed are pure, to me it's a great example of why it's so important for us to know God's Word and to study it in context. That's why we teach verse by verse on Sundays. That's why we want you to read along in your own Bibles. That's why I hope Sunday is not the only day that you're opening your Bible. Because it's God's Word. It's for you. Now Paul continues in verse 21. Paul says, it is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. You can be right in your doctrine, and yet wrong in your practice. If you neglect to look out for your brother in Christ, whose conscience tells him not to eat meat, 
or not to drink wine, or not to dance, or not to, you fill in the blank. Verse 22, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Once again, notice the context. Paul is not speaking about having faith in general. He's not talking about having faith in Jesus as our Lord. Paul is speaking about having faith in these gray areas. Do you have faith to dance? Great. Between you and the Lord, have that faith. Do you have faith to eat meat? Hallelujah. Have that faith between you and the Lord. Do you have faith to go to the movies? Do you have faith to watch professional sports? Do you have faith to use social media? Great. Enjoy those things as blessings from God and honor God in the midst of those things. Don't condemn yourself over these things simply because other believers are weak in faith in those areas. Now, I will say, any freedom in Christ can become a sin, right? We could go to a movie that would cause us to lust. Well, now that becomes a thing that causes me to sin. Well, I'm not going to do that anymore. So I want to be clear on that. Jesus says regarding that, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And he's not talking about maiming each other here. He's talking about, you know what? I can't watch that rating of a movie. Or I can't watch that TV show. Or I can't whatever. Because it causes me to stumble. It causes me to sin. I'm going to let that be my personal conviction. So sometimes those liberties can become a sin. But in the context here of Romans 14, Paul is telling us, if you have faith to do something, it's not a sin issue. That something doesn't draw you closer to sin, but closer to the Lord, then honor the Lord in it and enjoy it. Paul says in verse 23, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Is it a sin to eat meat? Nope. Is it a sin to watch a movie or watch sports or use social media? Nope. But Paul says, if your conscience convicts you for partaking in those things, then those things become sinful for you. Why? How can it be a sin for you but not for others? It's because you're sinning against your conscience. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Well, what is conscience anyways? Your conscience is your personal, moral smoke alarm. Your personal, moral smoke alarm. That's your next fill in the blank. Notice that it is personal. Your conscience is not for me nor is my conscience for you. Notice also that it is moral. It's about what I think is right or wrong. Similar to how God gave us feeling in our fingertips so that when we touch the stove and it's hot, we pull our hand away before more damage is done to our body. God designed us with a conscience to help us obey Him. When we think that we've done something wrong, our conscience sounds the alarm. And all of a sudden... We feel like we've crossed a line. We feel guilty. 
And God gave us this conscience to help us from hurting ourselves more. So if you're convicted when you eat meat, your conscience would sound that alarm. And you're not free to eat meat. The next fill in the blank. Your conscience must be obeyed if you believe it's functioning accurately. It must be obeyed if you believe it's functioning accurately. Notice that conditional clause, if, if you believe it lines up with God's heart. This implies that your conscience can be wrong. But you should obey it when you think it is right. This brings us to the next point. Your conscience is not always right. It's not perfect. Your conscience is not the Holy Spirit. They're not the same thing. The Holy Spirit is God. Your conscience is fallen, although it is still a gift from God. And so when your conscience doesn't line up with God's word, we need to fine tune it. Your next fill in the blank. Your conscience can be undersensitive and or oversensitive. And notice, we can be undersensitive in one area and oversensitive in another area at the same time. Somebody might have perfect peace when they lie, when they lust, or when they gossip. They might not be convicted at all. Does that mean it's okay for them to do it? Absolutely not. God's word is clear. Lying, lusting, gossip, those are sins. We're not free in Christ to do those things. When we recognize that our conscience is under-sensitive, we're not convicted by doing what the Bible says is sin, we need to pray and repent. Say, Lord, you're saying this is wrong, and I don't even feel bad about it. I need you to change my heart. I need you to fine-tune my conscience in that area. On the other hand, somebody may be over-sensitive in a specific area. Maybe their conscience prevents them from eating cookies. As long as they believe their conscience is accurate, they genuinely believe that it is wrong for them to eat a cookie, well, they shouldn't eat cookies. They should stay away from any and all things related to cookies. What a sad life. But when they read the verse in Romans 14, verse 17, it says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. They realize God doesn't care so much what we eat. Paul said, all things are pure, talking about food. Well, I, I guess I can eat a cookie. And so that person can go ahead and enjoy a cookie, even though they might feel guilty as they eat it. Because for whatever weird reason, their conscience is convicting them over eating cookies. And yet the Bible says they're free in Christ to do so. At that time, they can ignore their conscience because they're trusting God's word instead of their conscience. They realize their conscience is inaccurate. On this topic of gray areas and fine-tuning our conscience, I'm reminded of Paul's words back in Romans 12, verse 2 where he says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, don't calibrate your conscience to the world's standards. That's like tuning your instrument to an out-of-tune instrument. It won't work right. 
Instead, your conscience must be continually recalibrated by the Bible. God's Word is what calibrates our conscience. As you study God's Word, God will transform you. The Holy Spirit will change your heart. The Holy Spirit will fine-tune, adjust your conscience, renewing your mind, renewing your conscience to be more in line with God's good and perfect will. Before we close, I want us to notice how this passage in Romans 14, it doesn't end with the end of the chapter. He's not quite done yet. Paul says in the very next verse, in Romans 15, verse 1, he says, We then, who have a strong, who are strong, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, and not to please ourselves. When it comes to gray areas, don't seek to please yourself but seek to love others by bearing with them and their weaknesses, by bearing with their extra rules and convictions. And God will be glorified because we're striving for unity. This was Paul's heart and he lived it. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. Paul says, For though I am free from all men, meaning I don't have to listen to their consciences, Paul says, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, didn't eat pork, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. With the Gentiles, if they gave him food, he didn't ask what kind of meat was in it. He didn't ask if it was kosher. He just ate it and said, thank you for this meal. Let's keep talking about Jesus. Let's make him our focus. Verse 22, Paul says, To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Paul used his Christian liberty to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. And that is the example that we are called to follow. Your last fill in the blank. Regardless, or sorry, regarding Christian liberties or gray areas, be flexible, not dogmatic, for the sake of love and the gospel. In doing so, you'll become a more useful servant in the hands of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you loved us, sinners, rebellious, broken people. Yet you loved us so much that you came down and you lived a perfect, holy life. You lived a faultless life. And yet you still suffered and died on the cross in our place. But Lord, it didn't end there. God, you rose again, conquering the grave showing that you have fulfilled God's commands of righteousness. And Lord, because of your sacrifice, you can offer salvation to any and all who would trust in you. Not because we are good enough, not because we can earn it by not eating meat or by not doing any of these gray areas, but Lord, because we simply receive the free gift of your salvation. God, we thank you that within the body of Christ, there are so many freedoms, 
so many liberties, liberties that we have. God, thank you that your law is not long. You command us to love you and love others. But you don't tell us what we can eat and what we can't. You don't tell us what we can partake of and what we can't. You simply ask we honor you in the midst of it. God, would you help us to study your word? God, would you help us to fine-tune our conscience according to your will? And Lord, would you please help us to keep our convictions to ourselves? God, would you help us to have your grace for others who might believe and act differently on a gray matter? God, would you give us your love for them? And would you help us to choose to be flexible for the sake of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ and for the sake of your gospel going forth? God, may the world see us as Christians striving to be united in you, not finding unimportant things to disagree on. And God, may you get all the glory and all the praise And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.